Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 674. We got Steve Dalton back, and this time he's talking about how to make your interview, your resume, your negotiation when you are on the job hunt quick and effective. So you'll learn, one, how to answer that dreaded tell-me-about-yourself question, two, just how much time and effort to put into your resume, and three, the simple trick to negotiating a better job offer. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, I recommend you drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP674. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out the Gold Nugget email list, which provides a summary write-up of the wisdom Steve shares in an email you can read in about three minutes. You get those the day the episodes release, as well as unlock the vault of all of these summaries. That's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Steve Dalton's story. Steve Dalton is a senior career consultant and program director for Duke University's full-time MBA program. He has his own MBA from the same institution and a chemical engineering degree from Case Western Reserve. Steve is also the founder of Contact to Colleague, a corporate trading firm that helps organizations increase retention, drive sales, and develop internal expertise by teaching their employees to proactively and systematically build better professional relationships. Big thanks to Steve for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Steve. Steve, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It is great to be back. Well, I'm so glad to have you. And I realized one thing that uh, I neglected to mention last time and ask about was you have done, is this true, 87 escape rooms? It is. It is true. Absolutely. (laughs) I travel around a bunch to talk about my books and... It's a great way to meet people in whatever city you're going to and to just have a really interesting time, find a good part of town. Yeah, that's cool. I've had some really fun adventures and, and memories there. And, and so do you have a, a favorite room or company? I really got my start with escape rooms in Nashville. And so my heart goes out to the escape game. Uh, I've done almost all of their games and uh, Gold Rush is my absolute favorite. So all my friends out at the escape game, thank you so much for the wonderful times. You're my favorite. All-time favorite out of all 87. That's where I went in, in Chicago again and again, and, and each time was was a blast, whether it's with all people I know or or a blend. You know, I, I've, I've had it fun both ways. Yeah, I think I've accidentally joined like a, a teen 
girl's birthday party in the past, and uh, it still was an excellent time. But it's it's really random and, and incredibly fun. That's cool. That's cool. Well, right, well, we're not talking about escape games. Uh, we're we're talking about your your latest, the job closer, time saving techniques for acing resumes, interviews, negotiations, and more. So, could you maybe distinguish between this book and and your your previous book that we talked about last time for us? Absolutely. So last time we talked about the two-hour job search, which provided a, a extended recipe for the squishy middle of the job search. And by the squishy middle, I mean that period after you figure out what you want to do, but before you get into that first interview, because that's where people seem to get stuck most frequently. With The Job Closer, my follow-up book, it gives similar style recipes, more in a cookbook style, for all the steps that precede that and follow that. So it it skips over network and networking and focuses on choosing what you want to do, getting your resume together, getting a cover letter drafted on the front end, and how to interview well, negotiate, and get off to the best possible start on the back end of the process. Mm, that's great. And, and recipe is the word. I mean, that, that interview, it, it's really memorable for me. Yeah, I rec- if you haven't checked it out, and if you are seeking interviews to appear in your life, like I've never seen a, a more clear, prescriptive detailed, like, this is roughly the word count you're shooting for. This is when you follow up. Like, it was it was excellent. So no pressure, Steve, but I want more <laughs> of that from you. <laughs> I, it only took me nine years to write the follow-up book. So uh, I've had plenty of time to think about it. And I'm really excited to have these concepts out of my head and onto paper finally so other people can discuss them and and give them a test themselves. Cool. Well, well, I'm tempted to dig to jump right into the 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 particulars, but maybe if you could kick us off with that inspiring story, who uh, used some of these approaches and had some transformative results. Honestly, I see this on a, a, a daily basis during my busy season and on a weekly basis. But it's every time I see somebody embrace the the fit model for answering, tell me about yourself. I think historically we've all been bludgeoned with this concept of selling yourself. And what I'll see is my job seekers will come in to do a mock interview and you'll ask them, tell me about yourself. And you'll have been talking, you'll warm up any interview with a small talk. How's your day going so far? Uh, Where are you from? Oh, I I was up late watching the basketball game. Did you catch it? And then they'll say, tell me about yourself, signaling the interview is about to start. And people will go from that fun person who has hobbies Uh (laughs) directly into the robot who is like, okay, I've got the next two minutes memorized completely word for word. And it's very jarring. When it goes for, here are the three reasons why you should hire me. All the goodwill and rapport that you built during the first three minutes of small talk is suddenly wiped out. Like now I'm uncomfortable. You're a completely different person. And that's how I see so many of my job seekers that I start to work with. But when they embrace this fit model, uh, which fit, F-I-T, F is for your favorite part, I is for the insight that you gained, and T is for the transition you made. And it's just a, a pattern, a lather, rinse, repeat pattern that you take through each stage of your career. So my favorite part about being a chemical engineer was breaking difficult problems down into smaller pieces. But the insight that I had was that I wanted to apply that rigorous logic to a wider variety of challenges. So upon graduation, I made the transition into strategy consulting. So the nice thing about that is it's completely authentic. You're just saying what your favorite part was. The funny thing about saying the word favorite, though, it's so powerful because I can say, I can give you three statements. Only one is true. Can you guess which one? I really enjoy cleaning the toilet. I am passionate about cleaning the toilet. My favorite chore is cleaning the toilet. Only one of those is true. Which one is it? <laughs> well, I'm guessing it's the favorite because <laughs> uh, among the less 
competitive arena of chores. <laughs> and, and if you've got like one of the, some of those tools, it's, it's actually quite satisfying. Like, is it the, called the pummy? I think. <laughs> Boy, you really scrapes that stuff off. Uh, <laughs> pummy and escape <laughs> game are getting shout outs already. For me, that it is absolutely my favorite chore because minimal time investment, maximum impact of cleanliness. But to say I, I enjoy cleaning the toilet, that's a lie. To say I'm passionate about cleaning the toilet, that's definitely a lie. So I can say something is my favorite, have it be absolute, an absolutely true statement so it's authentic, deliver neutral energy, which is accurate, and um, not lose the goodwill of my uh, interviewer who thinks I'm lying to them. But I see so many people, it's actually a safer statement than saying that you're passionate about something to say that something's your favorite and you don't laundry list that way. So it focuses attention. But when I see people like the light switch goes off and they actually try fit and for each promotion that they've had through their career, each stage of their life, they go from this memorized robot into a person who's just helping you catch up on their life. Like you would help a long lost uncle. You never knew you had catch up on your life, being authentic and real and meaningful and seeing that light bulb go off never gets old for me. And, and so th that fit model sounds perfect for telling me about yourself because you, you're telling them about yourself and in a professional context and why are we here, you know, it, it, which is kind of sometimes the subtext really of, of telling about yourself. So is that fit model primarily for, for that question or for a, a broader array of questions? It's to a job seeker's advantage to treat, tell me about your, yourself or walk me through your resume in identical fashion. I consider those to be identical simply because the job seeker... It, it, you want to provide novel content. And where people go wrong with telling me about yourself or walk me through your resume is they do what I call the transcript, where they basically read their resume out loud to you, which like, does I not- that. I read this. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't add value. It's, you're just saying these words out loud that they've hopefully already glanced at, but probably haven't. Either way, it's not interesting. It doesn't help me get to know you any better. The why, why you did what you did, why you made the career change when you made that, that's not in your resume. That's far more interesting. It makes you a stickier candidate in terms of memorability. Uh, so getting away from what you did and more into why you did what you did, that's really helpful. The nice thing about favorite is it's a great humble brag. If you say something's your favorite, you're going to get credit for being good at it. If you say you did it a bunch, you don't get credit at it the same way from an interviewer. Right. Well, and it really is true as, as I think about my own transition from strategy consulting to I guess, podcasting, is that my favorite part of strategy consulting really was making a discovery in terms of, it's like, my heart would start thumping. It's like, okay, we finally got all the data. We got it all cleaned. <laughs> I'm about to push the button that pastes it into the chart, which will reveal, you know, what is the primary reason for customer loss or whatever the question is. Like, I, I, I would get fired, uh, like an adrenaline rush just in, in that moment before discovery and then they could say, oh, this is really fun to dig in. And so as a podcaster, it's like, I get to do that in rapid fire. It's just like new guests, new questions, new discoveries. I didn't have to spend three weeks cleaning the data <laughs> before I got there. <laughs> cleaning data. Your energy for it is palpable though. Absolutely. I a hundred percent believe you. And that's so critical is, is maintaining that authenticity and trust with your, your interviewer, because so much of interviewing is back solving. Do I like this person or not? And then finding the data that justifies why I do or don't like you. So keeping their goodwill is, is huge. And that's, so tell me about yourself to me is like a spoon when every other interview question is like a fork. It, it serves to transition you away from small talk into the content of your interviewer. So it's a gentle transition question away from chit chat to sell yourself. It's a nice, easy, easy introduction to you making an argument for yourself. That's cool. Okay, well, we jumped right into the tell me about yourself question. Maybe let's <laughs> re rewind a bit to, let's hear it. resumes. 
Oh my how gosh. How do we think about them? The terms, how much time should we put into the resume and the cover letter? And, and let's start from, start from square one. Uh, if, if you've read the book, you're familiar with Ed's three-hour rule, and I can't stress this enough. It's so neat and tidy. So Ed's three-hour rule is this, and this is after my, my boss, Ed Bernier. He says that, assume your job search is going to take you 100 hours of time. Don't spend any more than three of them on your resume. Any more is too much, any less prob- any, is probably not enough, but it signals how unimportant in the grand scheme your resume is. People so badly want to believe that if they put in enough work on their resume, they may not have to do this networking thing, which is really what I, I wrote the job closure to do, to help people get back to the more meaningful activity, which is networking as quickly as possible. But Ed's three-hour rule, basically in three hours, you can get to what I call good resume status, error-free and and have some accomplishments, basically bullet points that serve as, as a cheat sheet for your interview. These are the stories you're prepared to tell because they are your greatest hits. Uh, and if you have, if it's intuitive to you, you can add results and quantify them. But if not, error-free is going to be okay. The latter's uh, did a study where they found that on average, hiring managers were spending six seconds per resume. Uh, they hooked their eyes up to eye tracking software. And the shocking thing was when they looked at what these hiring managers were looking at, they found what they were looking at were where you went to school, where you worked, what your job titles were, what your dates of employment were. The unifying theme between all those items, they are things you can't change. But that's not the stuff that people stress about when they do their resume. They stress over the bullet points. I need to wordsmith. Should it be managed or supervised? And that doesn't really matter. They only have, spend on 1.2 seconds on average reading all of your bullet points combined. So really focusing on getting it error-free and objectively correct is going to be good enough for most job seekers most of the time and save you hours and hours of anguish and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of, of hiring coaches to disagree on what a perfect resume looks like. Okay, certainly. So let's just say all right, we're spending three hours there. And, and so that's enough to, to collect the facts and, and make it true and accurate and, and error-free. Anything else we should be doing with those three hours in, in particular for our focus? I think the best way to look at it, again, is, is as this greatest hits or a cheat sheet for your interview. In your interview, you'll be asked a lot of what are called behavioral interview questions, which tend to begin with, tell me about a time when you did something, led a team, failed, collaborated with others. And you'll need to have a two-minute story, a car story for challenge action result. There are a few different formulations of that. I like car. It's the simplest one. So each of these bullet points should represent one of those car stories, those two-minute stories you're ready to tell that demonstrate why you were better at the job than the person who had that job before you was. So it's not about listing responsibilities. It's about highlighting what you did with those responsibilities and why it was uniquely good. That's really the right way. You're going to have to do that before an interview anyway. Come up with those stories. My recommendation for maximum efficiency is think of those stories while you're writing your resume. So it is a cheat sheet for you. You don't have to do double work. If you make special bullet points just for your resume, usually people list out their responsibilities and responsible for dot, dot, dot is a giveaway sign that it's a terrible bullet point that anyone else who had that job could list. So it's not a differentiator. But you're going to have to go back and think of those two-minute stories later if you, you just put responsibilities in your resume. Might as well get that work done up front. Think about those kernels of experience, that, that one week or that one month where you did something excellent. And that should be your bullet point, not your overall responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, that's the resume. And, and cover letters, do they matter? And which, how should we do them? Oh, cover letters sometimes matter a lot and they sometimes don't matter at all. And you never know for whom they matter. Yeah. So my recommendation is 
acquire that skill, learn to write them well. That way you don't have to worry about what a particular employer considers their uh, importance. So the technique that I recommend for this one is called Rack for reason, anecdote, connection. And it's the same technique I actually recommend for answering the why questions that you'll get in your interview. Why do you want to work for our company? Why do you want this role? Why do you want to work in our sector? That same technique can be ported over to a cover letter because ultimately that why question is, why should we interview you? So the best way to treat that cover letter is to keep it short. So I demonstrate that it can be done easily in under 300 words. What they're looking for is a candidate that is authentic, specific, and informed. So you can quickly convey that with this rack model. You have an introductory paragraph about the role you're applying for, any referrals that you might have from current employees. And then you say, I would uh, think I'd make a great candidate for the following three reasons. Then you list reason number one. You cite a personal anecdote. It could be an experience you had, a conversation that you had with a current employee, an article that you read, something personal that can't be used by the, any other person that's applying. So unique to you, as long as it's authentic and meaningful to you, that's what counts. But then to finish that bullet point, to connect it back to why the company should care. So a lot of people will say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a great communicator. Here's an example of when I, I communicated well as their reason. But then to connect back to the employer, this communication ability will help me quickly align my cross-functional teams towards a common goal to get my work done on time and effectively. So you're demonstrating, okay, I understand this role involves managing cross-functional teams. So that's where you get that informed piece. A lot of people will forget that connection piece, connecting it back to why the employer should care. So demonstrate an understanding. It's a missed opportunity if you don't do that and you've done some networking and you actually understand what the role is. But the idea is we want to keep these minimalist, 300 words. So know what each sentence is trying to accomplish. If you are repeating a sentence or you don't know where it's headed, it can probably be cut. But I love cover letters personally. It gives me a preview of what this person will be, what getting an update email will be like if I hire this person. Are they going to tell me what I need to know, or are they going to tell me all the work they took to get there? And I'd much rather the, the, the first option and not the second. Certainly. Okay. Well, so then you mentioned that the, much of the heart of it is, is networking, and we talked a lot about that last time. Is, is there more that we should talk about here and now? I think in the book, one of the, the topics that I cover is the weekly manager meeting. So this is after you get the job, you're just starting out, or maybe you've gotten an internship, because a lot, a lot of my students are looking for internships. I think people think that the networking stops. And in reality, the networking is what gets you the full-time offer or it's what gets you promoted at the head of your class. So the networking shouldn't stop. And, and the first person whose allegiance you need is your manager. You need to give them the tools required to advocate for you at promotion time. You need to let them know that you've taken their feedback, you've made progress this past week, and here's what you're going to be working on in the coming week so that you don't make any mistakes or you don't have misaligned priorities. So the networking never really stops. It's just a matter of keeping people's trust in you. So the weekly manager meeting is just a simple format. When you meet with your manager, walk them through the updates you have since your last meeting, so key accomplishments that you've, you've hit, any progress that you've made, and then give them in order your top priorities for the coming week. And list out any additional priorities that you have but aren't going to get to this week so they know they're still captured. And then uh, my assistant, Dave Soloway, he, he highlighted this wonderful piece. Ask some questions that help you deepen your understanding of the role, or maybe that help that of how to handle a tricky situation at work. Or maybe um, just a different approaches that you've identified for tackling a problem to get your manager's feedback on which they think the best approach is. Asking for mentorship is an incredibly likable behavior. When you allow people to give you advice, it's back to that Ben Franklin effect. You can build a relationship more quickly if you allow people to help you uh, multiple times instead of if you try to repay favors. 
And the weekly manager meeting is just a different spin on the networking that we focused on so deeply last time. Mm-hmm. And so then I think part of it then is uh, making sure that you you get that weekly manager meeting and that, that it appears that, that it's on the calendar and it, and it doesn't get pushed, pushed, pushed. So any pro tips there? Oh, absolutely. So, and this, I'll see this a lot with my interns because often it'll be new managers that take them on for the summer. So they aren't going to necessarily be great managers and you still are responsible for making that relationship work. If they're going to go on vacation, ask them to pair you with a, a peer manager to kind of help you in the, the ensuing week so you can at least broaden your network. My intern manager, when I was in business school, he actually left the company shortly after I, I finished my internship. So he was kind of looking for his way out. And I still had to find a way to get enough people to say my name in that room when they made decisions on who got offers at the end of the summer. Thankfully, it worked out. But it was, mm-hmm. it's terrifying when you think that your manager knows what you're working on and is engaged. And if, if they are canceling your weekly manager meetings, that's a, a reason to sit them down, ask them, you know, are these meetings too frequent? Would you like to meet less frequently? Is there another way I can keep in touch, keep you up to date on what I'm working on? But really, you want to start broadening your network outside of just your immediate manager. So you're not beholden to a single person to advocate for you when you can't be, ever be certain that anyone will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of great sense. And and so then any, any pro tips on how to have those conversations with other folks within the organization? Absolutely. That ties back to one of the topics we discussed last time called the Tiara framework. So setting up coffee chats and getting to know them. These are going to be a little bit more personal, whereas Tiara framework informational meetings were uh, a bit more rigorous and uh, methodical. These will be a little bit more casual, but Invite people who are peers to your manager. Let your manager know you're going to meet some other people in the organization. You'll get their blessing. That way they don't think you're uh, doing anything uh, weird. Uh, you're just trying to learn more about your role in the group and, and the, the broader team. And then extend that to any other people that you meet whose work impresses you or who, whose work you find interesting. Not everybody will take you up on your offer, and that's totally fine. But the people who do take you up on the offer will appreciate your proactivity it's just so hard to demonize someone that you've shared a meal with or you've shared a, a coffee with. It's hard to kind of not look out for that person. So you humanize yourself in their eyes. You learn from them. You use that time not to sell yourself, but to extract as much knowledge out of them as you can while also establishing that rapport. Uh, but the only thing you need to do really is loop your manager in that you're going to be uh, setting up coffee chats with other people. Usually they'll be happy to hear that uh, because it'll make, only make you smarter at your job. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. Well, let's talk about interviews then. We, we've hit the, the first uh, question nicely. Tell me about yourself. And we've got a, a bit of a, a framework with the, the car, uh, the, the challenge, the action, the results. So can you share with us, are there some uh, nuances, extra tips or, or key questions that you could demonstrate this in action? I mentioned that the same template that I use for cover letters is the one that I recommend for answering why this company. So let's let's jump into that one because collectively, tell me about. Uh, I call a, ser- a subset of questions the Big Four. Those are tell me about yourself or walk me through your resume. Same question, in my opinion. They'll only ask you one or the other. That usually comes first in most interviews, and it's usually followed immediately by why do you want to work for us or why do you want this particular role. The other flavor of that that you might receive is why do you want to work in consulting? Why do you want to be uh, work in? Uh, why do you find the autonomous vehicle space uh, interesting? So uh, why this sector is the fourth question of the big four. You can use the same rack model for any of those three uh, variants of the why question. And where I see it helps people is typically when I am mock interviewing job seekers and I'll ask them why do you want to work for this company that you're about to interview with. 
one of the reasons they'll invariably bring up will be, uh, you're the market leader in blank. And, you know, this, everybody looks up to you, you're the, you're the most well-regarded company. And they'll just kind of restate that point three or four different ways and then move on to their next point without actually saying anything of value and without actually helping me understand, like, what do I get out of this? I'm, as the company, I'm the ultimate customer in the room. So is this a win-win? It sounds like it's just really good for you, the job seeker. So the way that I would recommend attacking this would be have a reason, your market leadership position. So now we need an anecdote to substantiate why that's uh, a true statement or why it's uh, meaningful. So for me, it might be, I've worked at a variety of companies from tiny startups to uh, larger Fortune 100 organizations. And I found when I was working at larger Fortune 100 organizations, I love taking advantage of their infrastructure for personal uh, professional development, for mentorship, for programming to help me get to know my start class so I could just deepen my bonds to the organization easily. I thrive when there's infrastructure provided. So I could bring this appreciation of all of the great infra world-class infrastructure that you have for developing excellent people to your organization, meaning that I'll grow faster and add value to your organization more quickly. So taking that kind of cliched point of you're the market leader, which tends not to lead anywhere. And, and if you're going to use a point like that, that could be perceived as cliche, add an anecdote to it. My best work has come when I've had the resources of a large company connect it back to why it's a win-win. This means I'll get up to speed faster and grow more quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and maybe, you know, as you've done your research that you've got a, something even more compelling than you're the market leader. I mean, because being a market leader tends to correlate with a lot of other good things, <laughs> you know, in terms of if, if you're growing, then you're exploring, you know, new cool opportunities or you're innovating and, or, I mean, just, just fill in the blank, you know, there's, there's profit available to fund great things as opposed to we're, we're pinching every penny. Exactly right. I think another, the, the kind of sibling answer I'll hear a lot is your, it's the people, your, your people are amazing, but then that never gets developed. Who specifically did you talk to? That's, it's such a cliched point. If you're going to say a cliched point like that, put it into the words of someone specific. I was talking to uh, Rachel Franklin and she mentioned that She'd worked for a lot of companies who called themselves family, but like at your company, she actually believed it. That was the first time she actually felt that family vibe. That really resonated with me because I do, I, I've had the pleasure of working with an organization where we weren't focused on our individual goals. We were focused more on the company's overall goals. We were in it together. So this will allow me to more quickly uh, develop the trust of my cross-functional teammates or my immediate work team so that I can uh, be integrated more quickly. As long as you make an attempt to frame it as a win-win instead of just why it's good for you and demonstrate that you've done a little research. You know who Rachel Franklin is. You've chatted with her. Uh, it just, it differentiates the serious candidates from the ones who just prepped for this uh, at 11 p.m. last night. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Okay. Well, any other thoughts then on the interview? It seems like we've kind of got that covered. So if I could add one more, the car matrix. A lot of people really like the car matrix. So what the car matrix is it, on the y-axis on the vertical, you list all of the stories that you're prepared to tell in an interview. And on the uh, x-axis, the horizontal, you list all of the questions that you expect to be asked or the genres of questions that you expect to be asked. And you match up which stories would apply to which questions. You'll have some favorite stories that you want to tell. So just knowing what variants of popular interview questions you can use your favorite stories for helps you deploy them in the most effective way because a lot of interviews aren't longer than 30 or 45 minutes. It's really important to get your best stories out there as quickly as you can. Having a strategy helps. Well, yeah, that's wise because 
you know, you want to share your greatest hits. And sometimes they ask questions that aren't quite a bullseye. And if you, it's sort of like the politician in the debate, <laughs> you know, they, they're not answering the question that's posed to them. They're answering what they want to. And as an interviewer, when I hear that, it's, it's off-putting. So yeah, having that prep stage right there is useful in that you're not making too much of a stretch at any point, but you're still getting to share your greatest hits. Absolutely right. Just a little bit of planning. Most often you're going to tell the same three to five stories in every interview because they're just your best stories. And that's absolutely desirable. But you want to make sure that you have a story ready for what's your biggest weakness or a story ready for have you ever faced an ethical dilemma? And sometimes those are stories you only use when you get that particular question. But having the matrix in front of you really helps you identify any blind spots you may have of questions that you don't really have a story that you're comfortable so that you can develop one. And, and so then are there any particular variants you'd recommend for particular questions? Or is, is that challenge action result kind of the way to go for just about all of them? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually recommend for different formulas of questions, you will add, sometimes add a component to the start of a car story or sometimes at the end. So sometimes you'll get the question of, uh, tell me about a time where you failed. So this is weird because they're asking you to talk negatively about yourself. At least that's what the question states. What they really want to see is, how did you become a better candidate as a result of a setback? So a, a lot of novice job seekers will focus for two minutes on the, the failure. And in reality, we want to bury that failure at the beginning of your story so that we can talk about something that was more flattering or appealing to you. So I recommend converting your car story into a scar story, where S is a setback. So early in my career, I did not verify my data before I started working on a project, and I realized that the data was faulty. So I lost weeks of work and had to deliver my product late. Thankfully, I learned from this occasion on my next project. And now you transition into a positive car story about where you handle, analyze data effectively or handle data effectively. You're not getting paid a premium, or you're not, they're not concerned whether or not to hire you based on like how great your mistakes were, but how you developed from them. That's great. Wow, that was very impressive how much you blew it. Uh, right, yeah. My hat's off to you, sir. You get the job, yes. <laughs> um, and similarly, you'll, on the back end, sometimes you'll be asked a superlative question. And you may not know how to answer it. Like, what's your best accomplishment? What's your biggest weakness, especially? So you may want to add a T at the end, so a, a scart or a cart story where you end with a takeaway. I like these for superlative questions. What's your proudest accomplishment? Because it allows you to put a bow on your story. Maybe you talk about the marathon that you ran or the patented product that you invented. But at the end, you can say, you can include a takeaway, which just finishes it on a nice note. The reason this is my favorite accomplishment is because, and that revisits, as you said, the question that they asked in the first place. So even if you're not sure the story truly answered their question, you can find a nugget. You've had an, a minute and 45 seconds to refresh your memory on that story. Find a little nugget in that story that applies directly to the question they stated. And you can add a takeaway at the end that rewords their question and states how your story is, is applicable. Or it just highlights, here's the reason why this is such a superlative experience in my, in, uh, for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now let's, let's talk about negotiation. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, should we negotiate or is that rude? Uh, absolutely. If I hire 10 people and only one of them tries to negotiate, that person's getting my most important project. If I can't trust a new hire to advocate for themselves, I certainly can't trust them to advocate on behalf of the company because it's going to be awkward. Some people find that deeply awkward. I have to hope that the person who advocates for themselves is going to be best able to handle the negotiation on behalf of the company as well. So absolutely, yes. There's a, a, a great research study I've just dug up that shows that when you accept 
the first offer you receive, you make the person who extended the offer doubt whether it was a decent offer. So they feel like a sucker. Maybe I overpaid you. Why did I do that? Yeah, it's true. Negotiation actually helps reassure them that they, they made an appropriate offer. So it makes both parties happier. A lot of people don't realize that by negotiating, you're actually making yourself and your, your counterpart feel better about the decision to hire you. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like if they say, hey, you know, this job pays uh, 120 grand, you say, awesome. Yeah, I feel dumb. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's cool. Although I will say that as, uh, I guess, as the employer, I feel great that I've pleased people. Uh, <laughs> it says something about my personality in terms of, oh, cool. I'm, I'm so glad that you feel gratitude and appreciation. Um, but that also makes me think, although I probably could have gotten away with paying you less. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's terrifying. Nobody likes to think they've been taken. And yeah, you think you're trying to be like, I don't want to minimize conflict and minimize waves by accepting whatever they give me. I don't want to take that 0.5% chance that they'll rescind the offer. There's a lot- Well, of, has that ever of, been happened in the history of mankind? I don't, I don't know. Maybe somewhere, but I, I don't know. It is kind of an- uh, urban legend more than it is a reality. Typically, when I hear about it in reality, the very rare case where I hear about it in reality, there were extenuating circumstances. It was The negotiation was presented in a very unprofessional way is typically the most common reason you would hear that. So as long as you're not- Steve, you're going to have to pony up a heck of a lot more cashola for me to even- This offer is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's where I hear that urban legend come to life. It's something generally pretty deeply inappropriate. But if you're just asking, and, and so I, I teach something called the pre-negotiation call in the job closer. I'm kind of amazed nobody else had kind of come up with the concept or named it, but it's made life so much easier for my job seekers at Duke. Basically, don't negotiate in your first call to talk about the offer. The, the pre-negotiation call is a non-negotiation call. It's an, a, a free information gathering call for you if you've just received an offer. And it consists solely of you going line by line through the offer, asking this question over and over. Do you have any flexibility around blank salary? Do you have any flexibility around signing bonus? Do you have any flexibility around vacation time? And if they say no, that means no. If they say, ah, we don't have that much, that means yes. So make a note as you go through line by line on the offer where there's apparent flexibility. When they're hiring a big start class, you'll often see a lot of reservation about negotiating starting salary, but there won't be that same reservation for vacation time or relocation bonuses or those other non-salary-based assets. But the nice thing about this is when you actually, okay, thank you so much for this information. This is very helpful. I'm going to take the weekend to reflect and, and we can chat next week about the offer after I've had a chance to process everything. And now you can negotiate on only the items that you know are in play so that you don't run into that brick wall of trying to negotiate on salary when this company can't negotiate on salary with you. That helps you kind of take the awkwardness of hitting a brick wall out of the equation and you can focus on a more productive conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And, and maybe in that same conversation, it could be interesting to ask about all the benefits not listed, <laughs> just to kind of make, because I don't know, if, if I'm in that position, they say, oh, do you do, you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? And sometimes the answer is, oh, I, I actually didn't quite think about that, you know, <laughs> it, 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 such that I kind of feel like I should, you know, ha have that in there. And the fact that I didn't, makes me think, well, maybe we can add that. Like, okay, that's not a big deal to have, I don't know, fill in the blank, a relocation stipend. And the, but I hadn't considered that and they brought it up. And so now, but then if I say, oh no, you're bringing up lots of good things that maybe should have been in the offer that are not. And I'm saying probably no to all of them. I, I feel a little bit 
of a tug, like I should probably make a concession elsewhere if I keep, you know, stiff arming, no, 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 on, on all these pretty reasonable requests that are found in many other offers. Yes. So the one of the books that I took great inspiration from was, was Getting to Yes for writing the negotiation piece. It was the first negotiation book I'd read, and it's a, considered a classic in the genre. And it, it really focuses around principles-based negotiation or, or basically to share your motivation. Don't hide it. Have a because is, what I, is how I refer to it in shorthand. So don't just ask for more money. Ask for more money because you're, you're looking to pay off your debt. You've created a budget. You're looking to pay off your, your educational debt within a, a certain number of years. This would really help you accomplish that with more certainty. Or ask for a larger signing bonus because you're looking to really lay down roots to make this a long-term commitment. So this would help you to put a down payment on a house. But as long as you bring them into that bigger factor, and then they may say, we can't give you a bigger signing bonus, but what we can do is, is cover your closing costs, or we can cost share your, your, down, your first down payment or something like that. We can loan you money at zero interest. Like There are ways they can help you that you won't know to ask for. But if you bring them into that deeper concern, they can become your partner in solving this problem of how can I make buying a house when I first move there more attainable. That's much more attackable than I want $25,000 more without backing it up with any sort of underlying desire or need or data. If you don't have a comp to show, actually, looks like people from top schools are making this range. It looks like people at top companies, your competitors are making this range. Could you meet me at that range instead of the, the lower range that you offered? So it's important to either have some data, however applicable, as long as it's favorable to your case, but then have reasons why. Have a because for everything that you, you plan on asking for. How is this going to unlock a win-win? Okay. Well, any other choice uh, tips or, or phrases that you love in negotiation? Can you help me? Can you help me do this? Can you? I think that's a, a very unthreatening way to ask for more. Like, can you help me close this gap on our salary difference? Again, it, it constantly frames your negotiating partner as a partner. You're on the same team. Uh, so it engages them creatively instead of getting focused on positional bargaining, which is, I want this number, you're saying that number. How do we save face and not hate each other in the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm really thinking back to what you said with regard to if only one negotiates, that's the one you're going to entrust it, it, just because with a big project. Because I think that really, that really reframes the whole thing. Like negotiation is not rude or inappropriate or ungrateful, but rather it is a further demonstration of, of what you're going to be bringing to the table. And not only might you be hurting yourself financially because you don't ask, uh, you, you could be hurting yourself professionally because of the impressions that sends. And I don't think, yeah, again, we talked about the urban legend. I, I just don't think that the fear is real. I mean, and it might just be like, no, hey, seriously, compensation is standardized across all of North America. It was like, okay, well, I asked and you answered, and I guess that's it. And 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 maybe there's a couple little areas that we could go after, but I'm not going to ask about the signing bonus or the salary or the 401k match uh, or the the target year end bonus. Is I guess standardized across North America. But here's a couple of exceptional situations that we can go there instead. And you still won. Even if you ask and get shut down 100% across the board, you've still tried. You still advocated for yourself. So that makes me more confident that you'll advocate for the company. Uh, so it's a brand preservation. It's a brand protection measure. And that's a certain loss if you don't negotiate or at least even attempt. That's a certain ding on your reputation 
that you didn't even try to advocate for yourself. Whereas this urban legend, I'm afraid of the the offer getting rescinded. That is an uncertain, very, very rare occasion that usually has extenuating circumstances around it. So make the less common mistake is always my guidance. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, any, any final things you want to share before we hear about a couple more of your favorite things? No, let's, let's, what's up next? Okay, sure. Can you give us a favorite quote? I am going to give a shout out to my late mother, uh, Dorothy Dalton. Uh, she has one of my all-time favorite quotes, and I found myself while I was writing the closer, uh, the job closer, saying it more and more. Her quote, and I don't know where she got this, this is it. The difference between a good meal and a bad meal is about an hour. <laughs> I just love that quote because sometimes you're just, you have the right technique, but you're not in the right mental space for it. You just need to get a little bit hungrier. And so I liken the job closer to a cookbook a lot. And so having that quote in mind, the difference between a good meal and a bad meal is about an hour is, is just very top of mind right now. Uh, I will always treasure that, that bit of wisdom from her. That's good. Okay. You know, it took me a second. It's an hour of extra hunger as opposed yes. to an hour of cook prep time. <laughs> yeah, it's a thinker. It's a thinker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you now, Steve. <laughs> and a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I talk about this one in the book too. Uh, there's a study by Frieder Van Eideking and Raymark about how quickly decisions are made in interviews that I have just been all about lately. So they show that 5% of decisions are made within the first minute, which is crazy. That's just small talk and first impressions. They show that 30% of, of decisions have been made in the first five minutes. So I talk about the importance of small talk and especially tell me about yourself. 30% of decisions are made based on small talk and maybe tell me about yourself. They further say that 60% of interview decisions are made within the first 15 minutes. And that What's covered there? Small talk, plus tell me about yourself, plus the remaining questions of the big four, the why questions. So I think so many people go into the resume or their interview worried about their car stories when they should really be worrying about getting those big four to be super compelling because over half of decisions are made then. Only 18% of decisions are made after the 15th minute in the interview. And the balance, the the remaining 22% are made after the interview's over. So don't stress about the car stories as much. I try to make it as easy as possible to kind of make them memorable for you. But really, if you're going to worry about anything, worry about the big four. That study is amazing. Mm -hmm. And a favorite book? I am loving Unwinding Anxiety by Judd Brewer right now. It's brand new. just came out a couple months ago. He does a lot of research on habit formation, breaking bad habits, essentially, whether it's substances or, or any other kind of uh, detrimental behavior. But he really marries it with mindfulness. And he does it in such a simple, applied way. I reduce anxiety for a living. That's how I view my role. I, I take away people's anxiety around this job search. Don't take on yourself the, the stress of curating job search tips. Let me give you the first draft. Follow it. Try it this way first. And don't ha- indulge the decision anxiety. But I still struggle with anxiety myself. So it, it's really helped me kind of break those, those patterns, those habits of bringing um, irrational anxiety upon myself and then blaming myself for indulging that feeling. So can't recommend it highly enough to anyone else out there who's feeling anxiety about their job search or any other topic. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool? Uh, my favorite tool is, honestly, it's the concept of the least bad option. So in, in the job closer, there's some controversial stuff. I mean, I disagree with the concept of selling yourself, which may be jarring to a lot of the listeners out there right now, because how can something I've heard so many times possibly be false? Uh, so everything that I put forth in the job closer is about the least bad option. It's not, maybe it's not a great option, but it is the least bad option available. So it's going to be better than the other ones that are out there, even though nothing's great. Really embracing the concept of the least bad option, trying a recipe, and then seeing if you can improve that recipe after you've tried it the, the original way the first time, or seeking out a different approach 
that will be better than the one that you're currently employing. That's really just a mindset that helps guide people through a, a rather unpleasant activity. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? Honestly, the, my favorite habit is is asking for directions before you're you're lost. Uh, I, I've done this all my life. I've seen so many people like get into fights over like not wanting to ask for directions, and I've always gone the other route. Whenever I sense I'm about to get lost, I, I don't want to have any ego on this. Let me pull over and ask for directions. That way, I, there's no personal stress on the line there. So when you're feeling like you're spinning your wheels, and you're not getting a great return on effort. Don't allow yourself to get too dug in. Uh, instead, just seek out an expert. Seek out a, a, a recipe that you trust. Ask for directions before you get lost, because it's so harder, much harder to do after. Mm-hmm. And is there a, a key nugget that uh, you? That kind of sounds like it right there. I mean, <laughs> a key nugget you share that is frequently quoted back to you. One that I've gotten a lot of traction with lately. The hard part isn't getting your resume right. The hard part of the job search isn't getting your resume right. It's getting your resume seen, and that takes networking effort. And networking effort is scary. But don't be scared of it. It's like being scared of playing the violin. If you've never played the violin before, it's not scary. You just haven't been trained. You haven't practiced. It's going to sound terrible the first time you try it, but you're going to get better at it quickly. So don't worry about hyper-engineering your resume because it's not how you get interviews. For every one person who's hired through an online job posting application, I think we talked about the New York Fed study last time, the Brown, Cetron, and Topo one, 12 people are hired through internal referrals. So get internal referrals. That's the modern challenge of the job search. And everybody's on equal playing field. We're all terrible at asking strangers for help for their, for their advocacy. So the quicker you learn this brand new skill, the better off you'll be. Even those people who come in and you think they have perfect networks for this, very rarely are they exactly relevant. And if they are relevant, great, they have an advantage, but that's a small minority of people. Most people don't. Uh, embrace networking earlier because the hard part isn't getting your resume right, it's getting it seen. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Fastest way on Twitter at Dalton underscore Steve. Uh, you can also find me at thejobcloser.com for the new book. And the place that I'm most active is the two-hour job search LinkedIn, uh, Q&A forum LinkedIn group. So if you're active on LinkedIn, look up the LinkedIn group, the two-hour job search uh, Q&A forum, and you'll find me there. There's about 7,000 of us uh, currently. I'm on there several times a week answering questions, trading ideas. It's a good time. So please join me. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Steve, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and, and your, your students as well as they're closing bunches of jobs. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure as always. I really love Steve's distinction there associated with the word favorite. His favorite task is cleaning the toilet for a very Steve Dalton-y reason, if I may, <laughs> because of the efficiency, the return on that time. And likewise, you may very well not have a passion for that part of the job, but it's kind of enjoyable and it is your favorite and thusly you're not lying. And it really helps cement that story, give it some color and be truthful and resonate. I think that's a grand little language distinction I think I'll be using again and again. Hope you dug it as well. Again, the show notes, the transcript and the links to items we've referenced can be found over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP674. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.